Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like a roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpers playing harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. The call for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his faithful commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its vine, grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, what a chilling and hard 
word to sit under today, but we know that we need to, and so please help us. Help me to be clear as I sit under it, and help us all to be open as we sit under it, because we know that your words are life. Amen. Well, there's no re really easy way to bring us gently into such a heavy passage. It reminds me a bit of the situation of two guys, one man named Fred, who lived next door to his friend named Charlie. Charlie was a bit of a loner, lived by himself except for all his pets, and for that reason, Charlie would never go away on holidays because he was always looking after his animals, but finally, his next-door neighbour, Fred, convinced Charlie that if Charlie went away for a week, Fred could look after his animals. So... Charlie went out a long way away, sort of past Sejuna, being a loner, didn't want too much human contact. He stayed in a little hut. The only contact he had with the outside world was the local general store who had a phone. Charlie was there sometime. He was enjoying himself. He went to get some milk from the shop. And then there was a message. And he, re he uh, read it with some concern. Cat dead, love Fred. So Charlie was both sad and angry, he got on the phone at the shop, he said, what's the meaning of this? How dare you send me a message like this? Fred said, what do you mean? The cat was dead, what should I have said? He said, well, you should have sent a message on day one which said, your cat is on the roof and I can't get it down, love Fred. On day two, your cat has sustained serious injuries, falling down from the roof and is hanging on in a veterinary hospital, love Fred. Day three, sadly, your cat has passed on due to complications from his fall. Love, Fred. Um, Fred said, I didn't realise you were so sensitive, Charlie. I'll try and remember that in the future. A couple of days later, Charlie goes back to get some bread and there's a message for him this time which says, your mother is on the roof, I can't get her down. <laughs> Love, Fred. So, there's no way to softly bring us into some things. Why don't we just therefore dive straight in? Okay, at the end of the chapter that we've just heard read, it, it, it really has a picture that is so horrible that instinctively we want to shut our Bibles, we want to erase the image from our head, we want to forget what's been said. But I want to say it's precisely because it's so horrible an image that we must not do that, we cannot do that. Because even though it's confronting and uncomfortable, and even though what we've been given are just pictures, nevertheless, Revelation 14 describes what is true. In other words, this is future reality. What we have here in this chapter are two final eternal realities. There's heaven at the beginning and then there's hell. There's eternal life, there's eternal torment. Now, you and I might think of lots of reasons why we'd want to think more on heaven. But the Holy Spirit also wants us to think about hell and to picture it, and that's why the pictures are given. And he knows we'd rather not, which is why I suspect two-thirds of the chapter are devoted to hell and only one-third to heaven. So why must we think about hell? Well, first of all, because it's real, you know, that just because something is uncomfortable in life and uncomfortable to think about doesn't mean it doesn't exist. All right, your tinea on your foot. Right? You could ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, but you know, it'll get worse. 
We have a weird tendency to ignore the things that threaten us the most. Do you remember that movie, um, Don't Look Up, where Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence played these two nerdy scientists and this comet was heading for the Earth to annihilate the world and they were the ones raising the alarm and the American president had a media campaign, don't look up, don't, don't, just don't pay attention uh, because to do so would be too much. But in the case of hell, of course, uh, we needn't look down. We have to look up, why? Because this is a reality which God announces so that everyone can escape from it. No person on the earth need go there because Christ died for the sins of the world. And he wants people to look up to him and to escape. But thirdly, I think we need to consider hell as well as heaven and the connection between our worship now and these realities. There is a connection. This chapter draws a strong connection and that's the point of the chapter. These two final destinations, heaven and hell, are based upon our worship now. And in particular, who we worship, who we give our lives to, to worship. This chapter has to be read with chapters 12 and 13. We covered that two weeks ago. Do we worship, in chapter 12 and 13, Satan and the beast of, beasts of worldly power and false religion? Or do we worship the Lord God? They are the only two alternatives. Every person in the world, even the atheist, even the agnostic, will worship someone or something. They will give themselves in their life, their emotions, their heart, to someone or something. It might be themselves. They're worshiping themselves. They're idolaters. It might be another religion, another God. It might be their family. It might be their success, their career, whatever. Now, we think, ah, oh, people can worship whoever they want. It's a free world, isn't it? And we can say, therefore, they can worship because there are no consequences. But revelation gives us a different perspective from heaven. Because we saw from the outset, there is someone on the throne in heaven who is worthy of worship. He is the Lord God. He is the creator of all things. And on the throne, of course, is the Savior, Jesus, the Lamb. They deserve worship because the Lord God made everyone and everything, every tribe, language, people and nation and Jesus died for the world. They are the ones who deserve all the worship in all the world. There is someone on the throne whom it is right to worship and who it would be wrong not to worship. And that makes alternative worships wrong. Because revelation lifts the lid. That's what it means, to lift the lid, like a pot. What's for dinner? You lift the lid, you find out. Revelation lifts the lid on who is behind false worship. We saw from chapter 12 and 13, it's Satan. Not that you obviously worship Satan, although interesting, on the BBC web News website today, there's an article about the church of Satan. Unbelievable, right? Well, maybe not. It's not normally so crude, but Satan has two front, front men, the beasts, worldly power and false religion. And we read that they make life very difficult for the people of God who worship the Lord. Today in chapter 14, we see where 
those two twin tracks of worship will lead. And the first is heaven. Chapter, uh, verses one to five. John looks and whereas before he'd seen the dragon, Satan, and these terrifying beasts, now he sees the most wonderful contrast. Jesus, the lamb, standing on Mount Zion. And what a tremendous picture this is. All we may see is opposition. John lifts our eyes. No, there is another reality, and he wants us to see it. In heaven, there is Jesus, the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion. This is picture language for all the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21 and 22. He is there. And who is there with him? 144,000 who had his name, the name of the Lamb, and their father's name on their foreheads. Now, that's a contrast to three verses earlier, the second beast of chapter 13, who, first, who forced all people in the world to receive the mark of the beast on their foreheads. Well, wonderfully, now we realize there are many people who will not do that. There are 144,000, and it's a symbolic number, isn't it? It's 12 times 12 times 1,000, meaning the complete number of God's people from old and New Testament eras, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles, all of God's people. Okay, the perfect number. No one is missing. And what are they doing? They are praising God. They are worshiping him before the throne. And the sound, we're told, is as deafening as Niagara Falls or a mighty clap of thunder. And yet it is as gentle and as beautiful and melodic as harpists playing their harp. Again, this is picture language, but picture language of praise of the saints, which is both at the one time awesome and at the other time beautiful. And what are these people like? They are pure, they are loyal, they are devoted, they are committed to Jesus, the Lamb. That's the point of them being described as virgins who'd not defiled themselves with women. This is picture language, obviously. It's not politically correct, is it? We're not to see this as... Um, heaven be, you know, just a, an exclusive male club for men who've never got married or something like that. Okay. Uh, sex in the Bible isn't sinful or dirty or anti-God in itself unless it's done in an anti-God manner, right, outside of his good design. The point of the description is to say that these worshippers are pure and devotedly loyal to the one on the throne. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They are loyal they are his. Were they always this way? No, they were not. They are redeemed. They're redeemed sinners like you and me. We're told they were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, this is a beautiful thing to be given this picture, isn't it? Because imagine we hadn't broken for Mother's Day, and we would have done this picture on Mother's Day. I thought that not wise, which is why we changed topic to that other one. Anyway, <laughs> all right. After reading of the terrible power of the dragon and the beasts, their fury and their deception and how they wage war on the saints and how they'll bring pressure to bear against them, this is such a relief to have this picture of all of God's people there redeemed in heaven, safe and secure, joyful, worshiping the Father and the Lamb. 
And this picture is given to us. It is God's gift to us today. It's given to us for our assurance. It's to motivate us not to give up. It's to spur us on in our hearts to keep our worship of God pure and undefiled in this life. Because as bad as things may get, as weak as you may seem against the opposition, guess what? The news is he has you. He has you. Safe, redeemed by the Lamb who has made your worship pure. Now, just as we have that picture for our encouragement and assurance, now our eyes are forced to see the other reality. And it flicks in a full stop. The other reality of hell. And it's introduced by three angels in rapid succession. The first sounds the gospel warning, proclaims the eternal gospel to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. This was the gospel that was always proclaimed. This is the eternal gospel. It's for everyone on earth to fear God, the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea, and to worship him alone. If we keep in mind the previous three chapters, we remember that Satan falls from heaven. The first beast comes out of the sea, the second beast from the earth, and they entice the inhabitants of the earth to worship Satan. Well, guess what? Now we see they are not worthy of worship. Why? Because they did not even make the domains that they came from. The Lord God did. He is the creator, the creator of heaven. He's the creator of the sea. He is the creator of the earth, not them, not the beasts, not the dragon, only him, which makes it right to worship him. But now there's extra incentive because the moment of judgment is at hand. Now more than ever, the imperative is strong. You say, well, the imperative's been there for 2,000 years. We can yawn, can't we? Relax. Do you see what you've just said? We are now 2,000 years closer to that fixed moment in time we have less reason to relax than the people back in the first century because the clock's been ticking. Do you know, back in January, world scientists moved the hand of the doomsday clock to its closest ever position to midnight. What is this doomsday clock? It's not a physical clock. It is a symbolic moment for the world, 12 midnight, of irreversible global catastrophe. Last year it had been 100 seconds to midnight, not long, right? Well, because of our climate crisis and because of Ukraine, that prompted them to move it to 90 seconds to midnight. That is the closest time to midnight that has ever been there since the inception of the world clock in 1947. And it's gone backwards and forwards over the years, but we are the closest now. Now, this is the scientists who are saying this, right? So if you can picture in your mind a timer of a bomb ticking down, which, a bomb which cannot be disarmed, right, that's the scenario. We know the bomb will go off, it cannot be averted, and people's eternal fates on whether they survive or don't depend on whether they heed the warning. This is serious news, the eternal gospel, but there's good news as well. Through Jesus, God has made it possible for people from every nation, language, people and nation to turn to him in worship. He has removed the barrier. He has paid our debt. He has washed us clean. And he enables anyone who trusts in him to stand before him 
to stand to lift their hands in worship. Anyone who turns from their sin to God to worship him alone. It can happen through Jesus. The gospel warning which is proclaimed really is a gospel announcement of good news. No one in the world needs face hell when God has sent the lamb to face hell for us. It's possible to turn and worship God and escape his judgment. And we're told it'd be stupid not to because straight after the call from the first angel for people to turn and worship the Lord comes the second angel. And he is announcing that Babylon is fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now Babylon in the Bible is a theme which runs right through. We'll explore it later on. But briefly, it stands for all, all worldly power in opposition to God. And here is the announcement of the moment swiftly coming that it is fallen forever, completely. Now we're before that moment, but we know it will fall. As it should, Babylon, how it, look how it's described, having made the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. That's the judgment on her. All the glitz, the glamour, the prestige, the glory, the adulation that is offered to you and to me outside of Christ that will vanish. It is fake. It's a mist, an illusion. And because when we give ourselves to this illusion, it is in fact called spiritual adultery. And it is maddening. It is maddening to us because it is empty, it's vacuous. It is maddening to God who is robbed of his glory. But it will fall, all worldly power so it would be foolish to give our hearts, give our lives, give ourselves to worship power, to seek glory that somehow relegates God to second place in our hearts and lives. It's just stupid to do that. Because with the third angel's announcement, we see where this worship leads. And here we get to it. And these really are horrible verses. It is, I think, perhaps the most horrific in all the Bible. And we want to shut our ears, we want to shut our eyes to the image, but we can't. They are put here for us to see and to dwell on so that we're crystal clear, so that we will no longer think that who we worship does not matter. We're told if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. At the moment, we experience terrible things in the world. This is partial strength. This is full strength. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. What a scary, scary thought. And then the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. How can you read that and not almost burst into tears? It's so horrible. Picture language, yes, but don't think the reality will be any less horrible. We are warned if our lives, honestly, are ones of adultery, if we honour God with our lips but our hearts are given to the world, there are consequences. C.S. Lewis said, there are only two sorts of people in the world in the end. 
those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done, by which he means, you chose not to worship me and you're gonna get it. They've chosen it right throughout their life and choosing not to worship God, so in the end, guess what, they will not. Tim Keller, who went to be with the Lord yesterday, one of the greatest leaders in our generation. He said, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory to infinity. It is the natural outworking of a life lived ignoring God. But yet, the verses still raise lots of questions, don't they? Is this really saying that hell is eternally conscious torment that is felt? Or is it saying after some time of conscious suffering, will it in the end, will it end in destruction and annihilation? It's an issue. How can the sin of this life warrant eternal punishment? How is an eternity of suffering proportionate to a limited time of sin? You see the issue? If hell was temporary purgatory, which you could get out of, that to us would seem fairer. How can eternal punishment be fair? And we wrestle with it, don't we? But I think there's three points that need to be said. First of all, the language of these verses seem to point to hell being eternal suffering. The word eternal is used. Uh, sorry, the, sorry, we get eternal from the words forever and ever. Now, that does mean eternal. In chapter four, verse nine, those words forever and ever are used of God to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, meaning forever and ever, not a shorter time. So it is eternal and suffering. Verse 11 says that there will be no rest day or night. Hell will be marked by a horrible restlessness. It speaks about the smoke of their torment. That word torment implies conscious suffering, doesn't it? So the language pushes us there. Second, if we judge eternal suffering unfair, we have to be careful not to judge sin by our own standards. Um, John Piper was helpful in this. He said, the degrees of blameworthiness come not from how long you offend a dignitary, but from how high the dignitary is that you offend. to sin in a lifetime against the one who's the highest. That is a grave offense, much bigger than just sinning against someone whom he has made. And we forget that at our peril, or in the words of John Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher and theologian of the 18th century, if there is any evil in sin against God, it must be infinite evil, given who he is. We make light of sin, we excuse ourselves of sin, when in reality, let's face it, it is an assassination attempt on God. It is me substituting my will for his in treacherous rebellion. That's what it is. Third, let's not try and tell a judge how to do his job. Uh, this happens sometimes in the media where the media want to crucify judgments made by magistrates most often for them not being, being too lenient in the eyes of the public. Now, of course, 
we, from a distance, know what 1% of what's to do with the case and all the contributing factors which may have impact in a judge's decision. So we have to be very careful sitting in judgment on God. If we read ahead to next week's chapter, we'd see that on judgment day, people will not be saying that God's judgment is unfair. In fact, they'll be saying the opposite. On the day of judgment, every decision that God makes will seem so right that people will be singing his justice. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. This will be the anthem of heaven. And we hang on to Abraham's words in Genesis 18. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Okay, how are you doing? It's really confronting, isn't it? And I know you want to shut it out or deny it because I want to as well. And maybe you're sitting there saying, I can't believe in this sort of God. But just be very careful not to make the God you worship a God of your own image. Because haven't we seen from this chapter where false worship leads? It's a warning against that. In actual fact, if we read the chapter carefully, we'll see that the pictures God gives his people provide a very helpful perspective. Because when we read this chapter against the awful evil in chapter 13, where power is given to the beast to kill all those who do not worship Satan, or power is given to the beast to starve all worshippers of God, because without the mark of the beast, they will not be able to buy food. Chapter 14 gives a wonderfully refreshing perspective. God has his people. They are marked with his mark, his name. They are secure with him, safe, and they will worship him forever. And then on the flip side, we are told it is neither wise nor right to give in and worship what is false. That worship will lead to hell. Now, that is helpful if you happen to be a Christian under great pressure to compromise or to give in or to go soft in your heart allegiance to God and to Christ. So what's needed for us? Verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God. Now, what if staying true to God may cost you your life? There are many Christians in the world where this is possible at the moment. Well, verse 13, another perspective is given. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. It would be better to hold out and die and then be blessed with eternity in heaven than to give in and face an eternity in hell. Those who die in the Lord know where their worship leads. They will rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them, we are told. There are consequences for how we, who we worship now for eternity. Because there will come a day when each of us will be evaluated or assessed or judged according to whom we have worshiped. And verses 14 to 20, the last bit, paint the arrival of judgment for two groups. There is a grain harvest where the righteous are gathered and there is a wine press for those who face judgment. And the Lamb of God is there, one like a son of man. And in what's described, firstly, we see from verse 15 that a time of reaping the whole earth will certainly come. Jesus taught this in his parables, didn't he? There's a day of separation of the wheat from the chaff the sheep from the goats, the weeds from the grain. He taught it again and again and again. It will come. 
and it's described here. And second, from verses 19 to 20, this judgment will involve a thorough outpouring of God's wrath on many. And again, these verses are chilling. It's a picture of people, some of whom will love. Terrific, being thrown in a wine press, tramped on with blood flowing out, four feet deep for a distance of 300 kilometers. My goodness. This is a radical, thorough judgment that crushes every vestige of evil in opposition to God. And so ultimate, so final will it be, it will render trivial any other horror we've experienced in this life. It cannot be watered down, this. So what's the application? Well, aside from the clear missiological application, that the whole world needs to hear about this and be warned because Jesus died for all the world and the angel was proclaiming this to every tribe, language, people, and nation, and we are a church, have we sent anyone out to be missionaries with CMS? Shouldn't this be a cause of prayer for us? Lord, please raise up from this group people who will take the gospel to those who do not know. Why? We should pray, be praying this. This is a, cl a clear application, is it not? Aside from that, I want to say there's a couple of applications. First of all, we must not go woke on God. In other words, you could, having read this, decide to cancel God because you do not like hell. Now, I just want to say, do not do that. That would be to depart from the God who is, who has revealed himself, and that would be to reinvent God in your own image to make him more palatable, but we must not do that because God has shown us where worship of a false God leads. So do not go work on God. Second, for the person here who has been worshiping the world, your glory, yourself, and you know you have not given yourself to worship the living God. This is not your life. Your life is going in a different direction. God has shown you the path of where that will lead. And it is hell. But God, in his kindness, is now calling you through his eternal gospel to choose a different path, to decide in your heart to fear God, to decide to give your life to worshiping him alone. And guess what? If you think, I, I don't know, I'm inconsistent, I, I, I'm weak, guess what? You can, because in his love, the Lamb of God has gone through hell for us so that we do not need to. He has opened up the way to worship. You declare your allegiance to him, you turn from your idols in your life, you put your trust in him, and you stand with him. Spiritually, you are there in heaven, amongst his numbered and he will give you the strength to keep going. You lean on him, he will provide it. So I want to say, choose life. And thirdly, for those who worship the lamb but feel the pressure and the pull of the world to compromise. Uh, God knows this pressure. That's why he's given us this chapter. So that you would have a better perspective. What's called for? Patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints, availing yourself every day, every year, every decade of your life to what Jesus enables you to do, and that is to worship God alone. You can do it.
Father, have mercy on us. We praise you that you've given us a vision of heaven. What a wonderful encouragement. May it feature prominently in our thoughts and our hearts. And we praise you also that in your mercy and kindness you've given us this terrible picture of hell so that we would be warned and we would give ourselves to worship you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.